This is an ABC podcast. Good morning, welcome to AM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land. There have been horrific scenes in Queensland with two police officers and a member of the public shot dead at a remote property in the Western Downs region. The police officers in their 20s were investigating a missing persons case, the police unions calling it a calculated and targeted execution. Hours later, Special Operations Police killed three offenders in a gunfight. Our reporter Stephanie Smale is following the story. Stephanie, many details are still emerging about this deadly incident. What more can you tell us? Well, David, police were called to this bush property at Wyambilla on the Western Downs. So that's about three and a half hours west of Brisbane. And they were investigating a missing person from New South Wales. So four officers responded initially. And the Queensland Police Union has told the ABC that two of them, aged in their 20s, were shot dead as soon as they arrived. Another officer was shot in the leg and has significant facial injuries, but he managed to drive away and get a call out for help while the other officer escaped through the bush. Now, another 16 police then responded to assist. They managed to retrieve the bodies of the two dead police officers, but then had to retreat themselves for their own safety as gunfire was happening. So then specialist police were called in and the police union says they tried to get the offenders to surrender, but they were fired on two and three people were killed in that gunfight. A neighbour was also killed. He came down to investigate sounds of gunfire and he was shot as well. So six people dead in this ordeal on this bush property and a lot of close calls. The Queensland Police Union President Ian Leavers says the two officers who died were executed by what he calls remorseless, ruthless killers. This was a pure execution. They had no chance. It happened that quickly. Young people, uh, loving policing, very junior in service, serving out here in uh, regional Queensland. And um, the opportunity to have a full life has been taken away. Their life has tragically been cut short. And you can imagine it will take a long time for police to unpick how things just went so wrong at this rural property. Queensland's Police Commissioner Katerina Carroll has also paid tribute to the officers who were killed. Our thoughts are with them during this extremely difficult time. Those officers paid the ultimate sacrifice to keep our community safe. Tragically, this is, this is the largest loss of life we have suffered in one single incident in recent times. It is devastating news and I know that it will deeply be felt across Queensland. And Stephanie, this has happened in a small community. What are the locals saying? Well, it's a huge blow for this region and the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has sent his condolences in a tweet, describing it as a heartbreaking day for the families and friends of the officers who have lost their lives and saying in that tweet that Australia mourns with them. And the Mayor of the Western Downs, that region, Paul McVeigh, says locals are reeling. This is an absolute tragedy in our community and as the Commissioner said last night, uh, people have lost their lives and a real tragedy right across our region. We're a large region with a small population and I know our whole community is devastated uh, mm. at the news and this event that's occurred last night and uh, the community certainly is feeling it this morning. That's Western Downs Mayor Paul McVeigh and before him our reporter Stephanie Smale. And if you or anyone you know need help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14.
The federal government is under fire for halving access to cheaper psychology appointments, despite an independent review recommending they continue. Patients will now only be able to claim Medicare rebates for 10 visits next year, down from the 20 that were subsidised at the start of the COVID pandemic. Political reporter Stephanie Dalzell has more. Over the past two years, Blue Mountain's mother Lindsay has relied heavily on additional Medicare-funded psychology sessions. Her 20-year-old daughter has severe OCD and anxiety, and the extra funding has meant consistent support. It's made a huge difference because we haven't had to worry about, you know, whether we can afford these, you know, extra sessions if we need them. And it just gives you a sense of security and sort of actually brings your anxiety down. In 2020, the government doubled from 10 to 20 the number of Medicare-funded mental health sessions available to patients each year. But less than three weeks before the scheme is due to expire, the government's announced it's ditching the extra sessions. I actually find it quite soul-destroying. I was really hoping that they would, you know, rethink their decision to do that because it's just so important to people um, that have the need for these sessions. Health Minister Mark Butler is pointing to an independent evaluation by the University of Melbourne, which argues the program isn't serving all Australians equally. However, the report also states that evidence suggests the additional 10 sessions should continue to be made available and targeted towards those with more complex mental health needs. The president of the Australian Psychological Society, Dr Katrina Davis-McCabe, says it's unclear why the government's suspending the scheme. By cutting to 10 we're creating a revolving door of mental health issues that are half-treated and going to be returning six months later with probably much worsening symptoms. Dr Davis McKay believes many Australians will be forced to defer care. It has been life-saving for so many patients. So they are going to be left deciding, do I need to space my sessions out? Can I afford to pay for ongoing sessions? And it's really difficult for them because they're then having to choose whether they do or they don't deal with their mental health issues. The government says it'll convene a forum early next year so that experts and people with lived experience of mental illness can assess the recommendations of the report. They'll look at equitable access for vulnerable and marginalised Australians. However, Shadow Health Minister Anne Rustin's questioning why the scheme can't be continued until then. Well, it does seem a little like you're putting the cart before the horse. You know, you'd have to say, why not wait for the outcomes of this forum to better understand what are going to be the the really important and targeted areas that we need to continue uh, this really important psychological support for Australians before you just rip these supports out of the, the community. That's Shadow Health Minister Anne Rustin ending that report by Stephanie Dalzell. A new report has found two-thirds of souvenirs claiming to be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander are fake. The Productivity Commission report into the growing industry says inauthentic goods are costing Indigenous artists millions. It's suggesting changes to product labelling to address the problem, but not everyone in the sector thinks that will be enough. Oliver Gordon reports. Imagine walking down the street and seeing your artwork ripped off. That's happened multiple times to Soretta Fielding, an Aboriginal artist of the Wanarua Nation in New South Wales. Well, it's a bit of a slap in the face, really, because this is my uh, livelihood. Seeing my art just taken and used without, uh, you know, a conversation or agreement, it makes me feel like I've been uh, robbed, really. It's not just the money. 
you have no control of how it's represented. And Aboriginal art is always sharing a story, often about people and place. So you are, you know, your art's there, but the actual story and narrative is missing. A new Productivity Commission report has found two in every three souvenirs claiming to be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander are fake, and that only $41 million of the $250 million Indigenous arts and crafts sector makes it back to First Nations artists or creators. It's making several recommendations, including a new labelling system to ensure inauthentic products are clearly labelled as such. But not all are convinced it's the right way forward. Mandatory labelling favours consumer rights over the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be able to uh, promote and sell their artwork. Kwandamooka woman and chair of the Indigenous Art Code, Stephanie Parkins, says if products can be labelled as fake, they should just be banned. There is no middle ground that comes with labelling the product as fake. Um, So from our point of view, If it can be labelled as fake, then yes, it should also be banned. She's welcomed the Productivity Commission's report and looks forward to reading through it more thoroughly, but says the time for measured reforms has come and gone. The message from all artists that we've been speaking to uh, over the country in relation to this issue is that fake art should be banned entirely. Indigenous artist Soretta Fielding agrees. Her message to any person looking to buy a souvenir or piece of Indigenous art is clear. When you're looking to purchase a piece of art, ask questions about the artist, their connection to country, what is the monetary value going back into to the artist or is you know where has this been sourced, all of those sorts of things. I think it's really important. That's Indigenous artist Soretta Fielding ending Oliver Gordon's report. It may come as a surprise in a country where cane toads and rabbits have wreaked havoc on our natural environment but illegal wildlife trading is flourishing in Australia with the demand for insects, one of the fast-growing markets. Sales are being openly offered on the internet and experts say it's posing an ever-increasing biosecurity threat, as John Daly reports. Our native animals have long been prized in the illicit wildlife trade, which is estimated to be worth $33 billion globally each year. But what you mightn't know is there's a huge demand here in Australia for illegally imported species. Everything is increasing. Um, We're seeing an accumulation of new species being traded, an increase in the number of users, the number of advertisements. We monitor uh, a number of the sort of the common open web marketplaces. We see a continued increase in all of the metrics that we're monitoring. That's Phil Cassie, head of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Adelaide. He spent years studying the illegal wildlife trade, and while you might think it's exotic birds or strange lizards being brought into the country, he says insects are one of the fastest-growing markets. Ants, in particular, are uh, a huge global pest. Uh, We've had a lot of ants coming in unintentionally, and now we're seeing people actually intentionally importing ant colonies. People are importing entire ant colonies into Australia. They are to, yep. So if you get on, on YouTube, you can see there's there's a whole community of people who, who keep ant colonies. Dr Cassie's found the trade is flourishing on the internet, most of it quite easy to find. And when you turn to the dark web, there's an emerging marketplace for plants, animals and fungi being sought for recreational drug use. So we see a lot of plants, but also fungi and animals. And these are These are species or taxa that have associated hallucinogenic or psychedelic properties. So there's there's been quite a lot 
being talked about the Sonoran Desert Frog in the US at the moment. Whether it's an exotic pet or a hallucinogenic frog, Dr Cassie says the wildlife trade poses a growing threat to Australia's native ecosystems and industries. This is where we see a relatively new and novel pathway for the introduction of the the possible introduction of species that are going to become our next invasive pests and weeds. And there are plenty of examples, according to James Trezais, who's the conservation director at the Invasive Species Council. The smooth newt, and it sounds like something out of a Harry Potter novel, but the smooth newt is a species that escaped from the aquarium trade and found its way into the waterways of Melbourne. And now it's a voracious predator. It will displace our native amphibians and and other small um, fish species in those environments. And it can also spread uh, things like chytrid fungus, the deadly frog disease that's um, just recently sent another frog species extinct in Australia. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Federal Environment Department says that over the past four years, 11 people have been convicted of wildlife trafficking offences and that so far this year, almost 1,400 illegal wildlife specimens have been seized with 14 new federal investigations into trafficking underway. John Daly reporting there. Throughout the pandemic, many Australians moved to regional areas or outer suburbs to escape city lockdowns and to better suit their new work-from-home lifestyles. But a report out this morning says that trend is now reversing as workers return to CBD offices at least for a few days a week. Our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan, has been looking at what might be the new normal, and we spoke earlier. Peter, we're heading towards the third year of the pandemic. What are we seeing as restrictions are relaxed? Well, David, you'll recall back in March 2020 when people were ordered to work from home and had their movements restricted, many, especially those with children, made the sea change, the tree change, or moved to outer suburbs for more space. No need for the big commute and faster NBN technology made Zoom and Teams meetings part of working from home life. But a report from the digital property settlement company PEXA, which handles many property purchases and sales, says that work-from-home culture is reversing. In Sydney, for example, during the first year of the pandemic, sales to outer areas surged by 30%, but a year later that demand had fizzled to a negative 1.2%. Employers are urging workers to get back into the office, even in a hybrid deal of two or three days a week. So demand is growing for middle and inner suburbs. PEX's head of research, Mike Gill, says as we head into the third year of the pandemic, an updated new normal is emerging. The evidence suggests so. So the you know I think hybrid is here to stay. You know some offices are requiring more days in the office than others. Uh, that really does come down to the individual companies, and that is influencing property demand. So I guess for folks who originally thought that flexibility was here to stay and, and they get to choose when they come into the office or if they came into the office at all, I suspect a lot of those workers might now be required to come in, be it two, be it three days a week, and that is impacting their property choices. So the idea of living a further distance away from the office perhaps isn't as attractive now as it uh, was in the early part of the pandemic. That's Mike Gill there, the head of research at the online property settlement company PEXA. Peter, so that's the trend for people who can afford to buy a property. What about renters? 
Well, David, more evidence of a tightening rental market and a crisis for renters. In Sydney, rental listings, according to PEXA data, is down around 20% for both inner and middle suburbs, and it's a similar situation in Melbourne, reflecting that reversal from the height of the pandemic to get closer into the city or CBD offices. Peter Ryan there. Indonesia is going to great lengths to calm fears that Australians and other tourists could face criminal charges if they engage in sex outside marriage in places like Bali. Officials in both Bali and Jakarta insist foreigners have nothing to fear from the country's new criminal code. But some tourists say they'll reconsider holidays in Indonesia once the laws take effect. Indonesia correspondent Ann Barker reports. Bali's beaches are still buzzing with tourists from all over the world, including some of the thousands of Australians who arrive every day on the holiday island. But many are worried the country's new penal code could change Bali forever. Among them, Wu Bingnan, who's in Bali with his girlfriend. If I can't, uh, you know, stay with my friend, a girlfriend in the hotel together, I would uh, think about it twice. Indonesia insists the law criminalising adultery, premarital sex and cohabitation will apply to foreigners and Indonesians alike once the newly ratified criminal code takes effect. Tourism and business officials warn it could scare tourists away and have a devastating impact on the economy. But Tourism Minister Santiago Uno says Indonesia is rolling out the red carpet, especially for Australians. Our main market is Australians, he says. People's privacy will still be guaranteed. We'll always protect the privacy of tourists while they're on holiday in Bali. Officials in Bali and Jakarta are furiously trying to calm the fears, even as the government defends the new laws that will impose jail terms of up to 12 months for sex outside of marriage. Bali's governor insists that hotels won't be looking for marriage certificates when tourists check in, and Indonesia's Deputy Justice Minister Eddie Hiari says even unmarried couples guilty of sexual relations will only be prosecuted if a parent, spouse or child lodges a personal complaint with police and that no Indonesian parent would want to expose their own child to possible jail. Both parties must be reported, he said, otherwise the case can't be processed, so they can report it, which means the parents are ready to put their child in prison or pay the fines. Hoteliers in Bali say they're not worried about the new laws and that far from scaring tourists away, there aren't enough flights into Bali to keep up with demand. Australian Michael Burchett is an advisor and former head of the Bali Hotels Association. No, I'm not aware of any cancellations due specifically to uh, this issue. And Michael Burchett says it's clear the laws aren't targeted at tourists in Bali. Some provinces, it'll be relevant. Maybe where Sharia law is, is practiced, but you know, in a province like Bali, immigration, customs, police will not, the hotels will not be asking for marital status. Nevertheless, Indonesia's tourism board has described the new laws as totally counterproductive at a time when the economy and tourism are still recovering from the pandemic. This is Anne Barker in Jakarta reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. 
In the US this week, a number of congressional hearings will begin into one of the biggest financial collapses in history. Around 30,000 Australians were caught up in the spectacular downfall of the crypto exchange FTX. Today, Tori Newmeyer from the Washington Post on the wild west of cryptocurrency and whether investors will keep going back for more. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.